0: May the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, or if there is one in front of you, and I'm sure that there is, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Well, beloved, last Sunday we began with the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, you don't know, we're in the midst of a series on the Sermon on the Mount during this Epiphany Tide. And at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, if you recall, Jesus had taken his disciples up to a mountain there in the Galilee. And he sat down in that teaching position, that teaching position of a rabbi to begin providing for his disciples Torah or instruction on how to live, on what the kingdom of God looked like here in this life, the one that Jesus came to establish on this earth. We saw last Sunday, too, that this scene was no coincidence, that is, our Lord going up into a mountain bringing twelve disciples with Him. This is reminiscent, of course, of Moses going up to Mount Sinai to receive the law and then finally to come down and to give it to Israel. Remember the twelve disciples, twelve, the twelve tribes um, of Israel here that Jesus himself was doing something that was in line with Moses, something very important up there on that Mount of Beatitudes. And in that section that we discussed last time, Jesus spoke in Beatitudes. Remember a few of them, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, to name a few, Remember how I said that these are states of blessedness in the kingdom. This is what the blessed life looks like on earth, according to Jesus himself. And one thing I failed to mention this last week is really, really important for us understanding this section of scripture that comes to us this morning. Notice how Jesus and God himself often pronounces blessing first before he offers and asks us to follow. It's a blessing, a pronouncement of grace and blessedness before he says, and now follow me. It's not go and be poor in spirit. Go and try as best you can to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. No, no, no. It's blessed is that state, and now come and follow me. Remember the Ten Commandments functioned in this same way. We get so caught up on the law there, the Ten Commandments, commandments in the the Decalogue there in the Torah, that we forget that even the Ten Commandments begin with this phrase. Do you remember it? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Therefore, the first command, you shall have no other gods but me. You have been called blessed. I have given you myself. Now follow my teachings, follow my law, my Torah, my instruction. And then finally, to distill last Sunday in two kind of theses, the first is this. Our following Jesus in obedience as that salt and light that we saw in that last passage from last Sunday, all of this following, all this obedience that you and I are called to as a Christian, this discipleship of our Lord, is finally as verse 16 says, so that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The point of our obedience, of our discipleship, is actually for the other, not just for our personal holiness, but that in fact our obedience, our seeking holiness through obeying Jesus Himself, will be a light to the world that they may be drawn in. And the second of those two is this. God demands obedience and not perfection. Obedience and not perfection. For you see, beloved, that obedience is a matter of the heart. Perfection is a matter of the law. And here's what I mean by that. When I say heart, I don't mean, you know, kind of lovey-dovey emotionalism. That's not what's going on with the Hebrew word for, uh, for heart. You see, obedience requires our heart. That is... The way that we see the world, the way that we think, the thoughts that we have, the feelings that we have, all of us, the Lord is asking for us to move into obedience with all, with all of our life, with our heart. Not perfection to every iota of the law for who, in fact, could do that, but our Lord Jesus himself. Now, all of this leads up to today's section, the Sermon on the Mount, that you have in front of you in God's word. Jesus fulfilling the law. Now we must remember that all of these uh, words of Jesus that we're going to read here and for the next several weeks come in a single sermon, a single moment of time. Last week, Jesus gave a glimpse into the blessedness of the kingdom and the purpose of discipleship. But you see, kind of the elephant in that room or the elephant on that mountain, as it were, with the disciples was this question of We're his disciples and he's speaking to us, but is he giving us something brand new? What is he in fact doing? How are we to understand Jesus' teaching on this mount in the Old Testament? For Mark's gospel says that even really before Jesus took his disciples up to the Mount of Beatitudes, he was known to be speaking with authority. So what were his disciples to make of his new teachings what is Jesus' relationship to the Torah, that is, to the law, or to the Old Testament? Well, Beloved, this is a very important question that you may not think is um, applicable to your life, but let me help us understand how important this is, the question of Jesus' relatability to the Old Testament. And let me try to um, cash some of this out with a metaphor here, actually two metaphors. How many of you are a fan of old westerns? Anyone... Oh, well, there's four of us then. Well, praise the Lord. All four of us. We love Westerns. I love Westerns. Um, my favorite Western show, in fact, of all time, um, not, uh, uh, not Bonanza, though Bonanza was, was really good. Anyone ever seen Bonanza? A few of you. A lot of you. I knew the Lord called me to the right church. <laughs> Bonanza's a close second to only that of Gunsmoke. Amen? All right. Here are two analogies, and and I'm only being funny to help us more clearly understand what our Lord was doing on the sermon, uh, with his sermon on the mount. The first scenario was this. Here rides to town Matt Dillon, the law, Marshal Dillon. He's coming to this town in this first example, and he declares that he is there um, to, to do one simple thing. Matter of fact, he gets off his horse, he dismounts. That, um, that quarter horse, and he walks with his, with his hat. And of course, he takes his hat off at the front door of the courthouse because that's what a gentleman would do. And he walks in and he shreds all the laws of the city, of the town. He shreds them all. And he says, I'm the law in this town now, and those laws don't matter anymore. You're going to do what I say. Here's the new law. And you know what? It ain't got nothing to do with this old law. Here I am. You can call me Marshall Dillon. Now, here's the second scene. The second scene is um, Marshall Dillon rides into town and declares that he is there for one purpose only, and that is to enforce that law that's there in the courthouse. That's my job. I'm enforcing only that law, and that's what I'm here to do. Nothing new, no fulfilling of anything, but matter of fact, making you hold to that law. Now let me play my hand a little bit here and say that neither one of these are what Jesus was doing, but these two interpretations have messed up the way that we have understood obedience to our Lord. These two paths, these two understandings of what Jesus had come to do have in fact poisoned the church's understanding of the Old Testament and what it means to be obedient. Let me explain. That first scenario where Marshall Dillon gets off his horse, walks into the courthouse and shreds the law and gives something brand new for the people of that small town to follow. Well, we've seen that in church history, that interpretation nonetheless. You may have heard of the um, anti-Saint Marcion. Anti-Saint Marcion from the second century. For Marcion said that, look, this God of the Old Testament, we need to get rid of him. Let's chunk all this Old Testament out. Any New Testament book that says anything about... The Torah, the law, instruction, we're going to get rid of that because the God of Jesus is not the God of the Old Testament. Jesus was coming to do something brand new. Now, here's what's interesting. I love, well, I I need to love history more than I do. I do like history. I'm a slow reader, so it takes me time to digest things. But history helps us to understand our present-day state. Would would you agree? Both in politics and, of course, the faith. But Marcionism isn't just old, it's something that's been throughout the, church, the church's uh, history and it even occurs today where you have prominent pastors and theologians of people saying, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, for Jesus came to do something brand new. But we're going to see in our text, if, if we're faithful to reading, to the, really the kind of common sense reading of the Word of God, our Lord does not allow that interpretation For he was not coming to do something brand new. But let me go even further with that first interpretation that the Old Testament's gone and here's the Sermon on the Mount and there's our ethic, a brand new one, as it were, for us to follow. You see, there are often people within the church, and I'm going to refer to them as wolves, not because they're intentionally doing evil and spreading heresy, some intentionally yes, some unintentionally, but you see they've given that, that gap. They, they've given well. Sorry, they've they fed that gap in that first example where Jesus does everything new, and they said, "Well, well, Jesus didn't obviously. He didn't. You read the New Testament. You read the Sermon on the Mount, He didn't. Dis, he didn't discuss well X or Y or Z. He didn't address it fully. And because he didn't address it fully, well, um, all is fair, kind of in love and war. We can kind of move on because he didn't address it and. It's obvious from reading the Sermon on the Mount that our Lord didn't address everything. We know that. Uh, Thank you very much. We know so much He didn't have to say because His disciples were steeped in the Word of God in the Old Testament. So much He didn't have to say because they knew it. And also because our Lord did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And then finally, to a lesser extent, that second example, also wrong. I must admit I fall into the second example quite often Lord, can't we just get on those war horses and and go take those people out that are are doing heresy and all these other things? Let's just kind of get on and let's do this and let's get back to the way things were. I mean, really and truly, who wants to pray for those who persecute you? Who wants to do that? I don't want to do that. So there's this movement in the church also in the second vein that leads finally, I should say both of them lead finally, not to uh, discipleship, but to actually trying to impose what you believe God ought to have been doing in that moment onto the text. So there they are. But our Lord does none of it. He will have none of it. He says, of course, this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. The law of the prophets is just a metaphor there for the entire Old Testament. Do not think that I have come to abolish it. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. St. John Chrysostom of the 4th century, early church father, wrote this, and I love it, of what it means to fulfill the law. He says, to fulfill the law means literally to fill it all the way up or to top it off. He goes on to say, Jesus' sayings here in in the Sermon on the Mount... We're not a repeal of the former laws, but a drawing out of these laws and a filling them up fully. What a beautiful way to think about. Well, and we're going to see it next Sunday. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord says, you have heard it, what? Said, but now I say unto you. He's not rejecting what has been said. He's topping it off, filling it up. Follow along with me on verse 18 here if you have a, a Bible in front of you. Our Lord says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now, of course, um, though that that is Greek there, not an iota, our Lord was referencing the yod in Hebrew, which is the smallest um, uh, member letter of the alphabet in the Hebrew alphabet. The yod, the smallest. And the dot probably referred to one of those markings, if you've ever seen Hebrew, some of the small little markings, vowel pointings and those things. And the point is this, that none of the law is going to be irrelevant until it is all accomplished. Let me quote here John uh, Stott, an Anglican, a good Anglican. He says this, for one day they will pass away in a mighty rebirth of the universe, that is both um, uh, the law and... The earth itself. Then time as we know it will cease, and the written words of God's law will be needed no longer, for all things in them will have been fulfilled. Thus, the law is, an endu- is as enduring as the universe itself. The final fulfillment of the law and the new birth of the universe will coincide together. Both will, as it were, pass away together. And we would say, in that new heaven, in that new earth, it's interesting, a, a later rabbinic um, tradition was to talk about, and this is after our Lord, but it sheds some light on how the Jewish people understood and how the disciples would have understood Jesus' statement that not even an iota or a dot will pass away from the law. Rabbis would say this that, um, <laughs> that the iota was removed from Sarai. You spell Sarai in Hebrew. Of course, Sarah before, um, before she was given the promise, Sarai. That yod was, was taken away from, from, from Sarai. She was turned into Sarah. The rabbi said that that yod complained to God. Why are you taking me away? For I was part of your word, of the law. And the rabbi said, well, the Lord made sure that that yod, or that yod itself appeared back into the name of Joshua, which means Savior. I love just this, this notion in the Hebrew mind that nothing from the law will ever permanently be extinct, be taken away. That's how the disciples heard it. Verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Let me tell you a story. It's a bit embarrassing, um, but I'll never forget um, years ago at the small country church of Mammoth Baptist Church. I often make the joke it was named Mammoth Baptist Church. There were 60 of us uh, total, <laughs> rather smallish. It's just that woolly mammoth they haven't discovered yet, the small one. We would go on a youth trip every summer to Lake Texoma. Now, uh, Lake Texoma is one of two lakes in Oklahoma, two very large lakes, lakes Te- Lake uh, Texoma and Lake Ufala. Those are our lake... Martin and I don't know, Smith Lake. Those are Lake Martin and Smith Lakes there in Oklahoma. Now, the, uh, Lake Texoma is on uh, the border of Texas and Oklahoma, thus the name. It's a, a damming of the Red River. And we would go there every summer, okay, and we would do a VBS at the campground. So all of us kids in the youth group and some sponsors, we would go to a random youth, uh, excuse me, a random uh, campsite, and we would set up VBS. We would get there on Sunday night. We would pray, we would eat, we'd stay there for a week, and on Monday we'd go to the campsite and kind of surprise everybody. Hey, like, we're here and we're doing VBS, and at first a lot of the, the people were kind of weirded out, and it really helps you as a young kid when you're like, I was, I think I was 12 the first time I ever went, we did, went uh, four times, I'll never forget like knocking and people are like, who are you, what are you doing here, you know, get out of here, I'm, I'm here to fish or whatever. So uh, it was all kind of weird at first until they realized that we were going to take their kids for like two hours and they could take naps or, or go fishing and not have to, you know, um, uh, take the tackle for their kid and put it on, they could just fish kind of unencumbered. And they love it and they would send our, their, their kids to us. Well, we would always have a good time. And uh, back at, uh, at our campsite, though, where we stayed as a youth group, we would be mischievous and, 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 and whatnot. Well, I hate to say this, and, and, and the Lord, of course, has forgiven me of this, but, but I sinned um, one time in the fact that I was, I think it was the first or second time I went, I was 12 or 13, one of the younger brothers, okay, was about to rat us out for going and sneaking out to the water late at night and just kind of playing out near the lake late at night. And we shouldn't have been doing that, it was sinful, you know, I know I'm a bad man, but to make it even worse, I went to the brother and the little kid and I was like, hey, you know, you probably shouldn't say that we were out there. You should just say that we were asleep in the cabin. I was trying to get you know, the, the young kid to kind of tell the lie for me so that we would all be, be good. Um, and I was doing that to save my own skin. Now, of course, a young kid, I'm thinking, it's not just me, it's everybody. I'm trying to save everybody's skin here. But I was actually lying. What was I doing? I was trying to get the younger boy to relax one of the commands of God, wasn't I? Relax it. Just just look. I mean, technically, if you say, like, you don't know where we were or whatever, it's not a full lie, right? It's only a kind of partial lie. I was trying to get him to relax one of the least of these commandments. And our Lord is very emphatic here in verse 19, very emphatic. If you relax one of these commandments, okay, both of the old and of what he is going to speak as a fulfillment of the old, and you teach others to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Words that, those are strong words. Those are powerful words for us. You see, we're called to be teaching our children, our grandchildren, brothers and sisters who are young in the faith, though they might be old, not to relax the commands of Jesus, but in obedience to live them, to accept them, to say that we are under His authority. Then, of course, our Lord goes on to say, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Finally, brothers and sisters, let me conclude with a few things here. Let's go to verse 20. Our Lord says to his disciples and to us, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's all, folks. Um, let's go ahead and head on out here. That's a pretty tough saying. What are we to make of this? I mean, these are, these are the words of Jesus, the Savior, God himself. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, let me say this about what our Lord, I think, is getting at. You see, his statement here, um, I'm sure astonished those that were around him. But here's the thing. Christian righteousness can surpass that of the Pharisees in kind rather than in degree. John Stott hints at this, that Christian righteousness is able to surpass that of the pharisaical righteousness in its kind, not necessarily in degree. Let me go to the Old Testament to prove this point for a moment. Remember those words of the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, verse 33? The Lord says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 36, 27, And I will put my spirit, God says, within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Brothers and sisters, Christian righteousness, also striving for holiness as Christians, is a matter of the heart. And again, what do I mean by that? You and I could, quote-unquote, keep the the, the law itself um, hypothetically perfectly, but our heart is begrudging against God. I mean, the best example of this type of kind of Pharisaicalism I'm just making a point. I don't know. Deacon's Act, that may be a word. I don't know. Pharisaicalism. Is that even correct? Pharisaism? We're going to work with it. We're going to go. With it. Thanks, Bob. When you get the celebrant's permission, you're good on this. Now, let me say this. It's actually false humility paints the, the best picture, I think, of, of what our Lord is getting at. And I've done this in my life, you know, several times. I'm sure you have, too. Oh, I'm just, I'm just nothing. I don't, I can't do much, or, Oh, you know, kind of woe is me. You're trying to kind of get that humility out there for everyone to see, but in your heart you're actually like, eh, I'm actually pretty good at this. You can hide it through the external, quote-unquote, kind of obeying. The external looks good. We talked about it in our Proverbs class this morning. The external looks good. To everyone else it looks like you're obeying every dot and iota of the law, but your heart is miserable. You're still a miserable offender. Christian righteousness Is different in kind from that of the Pharisees. For we are so encapsulated by the love of God that His Son would die for us on a cross that we are moved in by love to obedience. And, brothers and sisters, the other side of that hard teaching is that obedience does see itself as practicing and living out those commands, but not as strict law, but as a turn of heart. For our Lord cares about our heart and not just our feelings. I said I was going to end with this, and, and I'm almost done. And here it is. And men, I want to speak to you for just a moment. A lot of men see the gospel message as emasculating. That if you do not feel kind of lovey-dovey all the time and, and have kind of an emotive response all the time, that something might, in fact, be wrong with you. That you don't experience the Lord in that way. Some of you may, men may feel that, and some women, of course, as well. But let me say that that word in Hebrew, heart, that our Lord would use and was getting at, it doesn't just mean our emotions, it means our emotions and our mind and how we see all of reality. That's the turn of heart that our Lord is looking for that finally moves us into obedience. Let me conclude with two passages of Scripture, beloved, that I think will hopefully propel us into next week as we get to see some of the -the on-the-ground teachings that our Lord gives us teachings about anger and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation. Hear these words from 2 Peter, 3, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 3-4. His divine power has granted to you all all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to you all his precious and very great promise, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Beloved, by the power of the Spirit, through our baptism, through the means of grace, God is helping us to be obedient to Him, and He's actually allowing us to partake in His nature because we partaken in the nature of His Son. And then finally, from 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Beloved, do not despair if you're not perfect, but repent and ask God to help you to move into Obedience.